16 to 1, a podcast about education, teaching, and learning. sinus infection you always get one at the beginning of school though which roughly translates to i woke up this morning and googled covid symptoms for 20 minutes mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's how i am uh-huh how about yourself i'm okay yeah compared to that i mean i have seasonal allergies also happening right now but they're not affecting me the way they're affecting you because of the mind game that i played with myself or because you just feel better than i do both <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm both I'm afraid. I'm devastated. Yeah. Sorry. What are we drinking? What are we what are we doing? I don't have anything. Do you need something? I'm I'm okay. I think we should probably just do it like that. I'm drinking G Fuel to stay awake. Are you sure G-Fuel you don't want this, one? This podcast is brought to you by No, it's not. Code word. <laughs> but I wish it were. Murder. <laughs> no, no. No, no, no. I have just been drinking a lot of water. Mm-hmm. And I've been taking my little red sinus pill. Yeah, I had a pocket full of them. Like candy. <sighs> Not quite. I'm hoping it goes away. But that is the story of a teacher right now who uh-huh. is doing in-person learning. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. Understood. Pretty, okay. Pretty sad about it. Well, uh, yeah. But uh, going well. Good. So far. Good. I think I'm going to wear a T-Rex inflatable costume tomorrow. For any particular reason? Just or... to cheer everyone up. Just to bring some joy. I just think it'd be funny. It's good because it's almost like wearing a hazmat suit. Also that. In the shape of a dinosaur. But larger. I take it more space than a hazmat suit. Yeah. Tenth graders are sort of at the age where when their teacher does embarrassing things, it's kind of like when their mom does something embarrassing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just excited to watch them squirm. Good. Yeah. I like your attitude. Thank you. My senior girls have just taken to calling me mom. That's cute. And I think it's just because I turned 30. Oh. What are we doing this week? Oh, well, I've got some timely. It's it's a timely subject, I would think. I got kind of mad. Uh, researching? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wasn't expecting this that. This one was never going to be fun to research. We're going to be talking about the cost of higher education. Well, I think that this will probably have to come up again later. This conversation. Probably. Because it's kind of a lot, for one. Well, it's not going away anytime soon. We're talking about it now because COVID has people talking about it again now. They're like, why am I spending so much money on college when I'm not even there? Yeah. But But, also the 2020 election is coming up and it's, uh, you know, people talk about it. Isn't it weird, though, that we've not really heard about it? Yeah. And I'm not mad about it because there's actually a pandemic to deal with yeah it comes up once every four years usually it's really funny because i think in other years i'd be like you know we need to be focusing and this year i'm like "Uh uh-huh and also like Mm -hmm. there's just so many more things that are like closer to the top of the list because people are literally dying by the day right it it does sort of make me laugh because it puts it in perspective pretty quickly yeah it has that effect but you chose this topic this week. I think you gave me some options and yeah. I chose this one. Well, you kind of like the spin about COVID, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, well, I just think, I mean, it's on people's minds because of COVID. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's a good time to talk about it and also 
heads are a little cooler about it than than usual because it's not uh it's not just being used as a political yeah shiv right now which is usually how it is used once every four years like we were talking about so it's it's nice to have something else prompt a discussion well, about college costs. This conversation is happening in the world of public high schools as well for those that are doing remote work. Because mm-hmm. it's like I've seen people on Facebook who are like, well, I'm not going to pay my taxes since the teachers aren't working and I'm their teacher now. So I should be paid, you know? Uh-huh. Are you mad? Interesting. Interesting take. <laughs> I'm not saying that I endorse it. I'm saying that I've read that online. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting how money and education do or don't work together. <laughs> hey, you know what? Part 500 Maybe million. Maybe we should stop defunding, defunding education. education. Great. Wow. Okay. Well, just to put it in a little bit of perspective, let's talk about just ballpark average costs of higher education now. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's a lot of dollars. So we're going to use figures, mm. facts and figures from the ni- 2019, 2020 school year. You're already groaning because oh, there's so many there's, dollars. Well, there's a lot of numbers, and I'm an English no. Um, <laughs> I it's expensive. Yeah, one hundred and twenty-two thousand dollars was the all-around yeah. average. So eighty-seven thousand eight hundred for a public four-year institution. If That's, you are on average for in-state yeah. rate, in-state rate. Out of state, it's $153,320 for a four-year. Public four-year. That's actually higher than I thought it would be for public four-year. For out of state, though? Yeah. Really? I don't know why. High state's expensive out of state. I believe it. So what is it for private? Oof. You don't. $199,500. Almost $200,000. What about a two-year degree? Yeah. It, it's on track with that. It's about <laughs> half of the four the average for a four-year. So, like... For a public two-year institution in state, right? Yeah. It's 50880 so almost That 51, actually is significantly higher than I thought it would be, the two-year one. All of these are pretty high. No, I am not. <laughs> I'm not playing down $199,000 for yeah. a private four-year, but I am surprised with a two-year degree. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the yearly average costs then. Yeah, for one year of yes. higher education. Okay, this is these numbers are a little bit more where I was comfortable with, so I um Well it's because they always advertise it in terms of what a year's Yeah, that's why I'm sitting here shocked. When you add it all up, so you're right. it's like oof. Okay, so twelve thousand seven hundred and twenty dollars for public two year institution for the in state rate. Mm-hmm. Twenty one thousand nine hundred and fifty dollars for a public four year institution for the in state rate. And $38,330 for public four-year institution. That's the out-of-state. But this is where things get kind of out of control. The private schools. Yeah. $49,879 for private, nonprofit, four-year institution. For a year. That's that's the average. So just... Yeah. That's the yearly average cost is $50,000. So just think about... I can think of a, a few schools in Ohio that I've kind of helped my seniors, you know, navigate uh, the application process for that are above 50 for a year. <laughs> and I always have a really hard time being like, this is worth your money. You know, I've been, it's it's hard mm-hmm. to value that amount of money uh-huh. and the education you get for it. For a bachelor's, let me be clear. Yeah. Like, that's where things get out of control for me. Let's just, just to make everyone ill, 
Let's compare this across around the world. For <laughs> so I, public schools, public schools at the bachelor bachelor yeah. level, bachelor so, degree level. Australia, four thousand seven hundred sixty three dollars. Mm-hmm. Austria, nine hundred and fourteen dollars. Canada, four thousand nine hundred thirty nine dollars. So, th- so for about four years, they, these people are paying about twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, four years. Japan is a little bit more. Japan was on the more expensive, and uh, the United States was at the top, obviously. We are paying more per year than any other country. To add insult to injury, can we talk about Denmark, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Poland, and Germany, and they many others? do socialize the cost of higher education. Zero dollars. Yeah. It's free. I'm so mad. It's very competitive. I'm happy for them. They have a lot, I think probably per percentage of population, fewer people go to college in these places, but uh, they, they have European countries in particular also have like the technical school kind of route their tracks the, are a little different they have yeah. different tracks and mm-hmm. i don't entirely understand it and we should i should probably research it before i talk about it at all because i'm just well, extrapolating from what i learned in french class in high school but anyway we will do an episode someday on specific um countries like that and sort of their education system but it's still very cheap it is a little bit off-putting to discover that you can go to college for free in some parts of the world when you look at <laughs> the average cost <laughs> for attending school in America. Well, and this is important because the cost of higher ed has surged more than 538% since 1985. Yeah. So to compare that, medical costs have jumped more than 286%. Okay, and can you believe how much of a stink people make about rising medical costs in this country? Compare yeah. that, it's like... Twice as much. Twice as much, yeah. Higher education. Um, And the consumer price index has jumped 121%. So basically what that tells us is that higher ed is almost four and a half times as expensive as it was 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago, but still. When, when we were born, it was it's now four and a half times more yeah. expensive. Okay, and so like you can throw out those numbers, but to put it into context, when you look at the increase over time, like... From, so 1989, this was one study that I found. From 1989 to 2016, the cost to attend colleges increased almost eight times faster than wages. You know what we should also do while we stop defunding education? What? We should raise the minimum wage. That would be a good place to start. No, but this is just... That's a different it, episode, th- but... This, <laughs> is, this is what's difficult about having this conversation with people. It's like, okay, productivity... I, I was talking to my dad about the other day about how productivity has increased and increased and increased and wages have been stagnant, okay? Mm-hmm. The cost of m- medical costs jumped more than 286% mm-hmm. since 1985. Wages, stagnant. <laughs> like, higher ed, 538% increase since 1985. Wages, stagnant. So, like, even adjusting for inflation, here's here's the adjusted for inflation numbers. In 1989, Cost of a four-year degree averaged $52,892. That's close to what the average is for one year of private four-year education now. And you would need at least four. You need most, some, I would, you know, venture to four and a half to five. Four-year degree, $52,892 on average in 1989. This is all adjusted for inflation. In 2016, cost of the same degree was nearly $104,480. Mm. So we're looking at 27 years, basically. So it just, it, that just blows my mind. And like, I, I don't know. There are other facts and figures that you can argue about when it comes to the economy about why that may or may not be or whether it's fair mm-hmm. or not. But I just, I have a real hard time 
with this one because of the conversations that I, I know we have this in our notes somewhere, but just later we'll talk about how, how do we go from being able to pay mm. for a college degree, working a part-time job to crushing, crushing debt of student loans. So, I mean, okay, I'll get off my soapbox about wages, but I, I'll get back on it at some point. Well, again. a lot of the things that I read were in this research was how, the the people who are suffering from this crippling debt are having to in this case it's a lot of millennials um that they're putting off buying a house and they're putting off other things so it's just kind of a weird effect because you know people are told that a degree is what you need and so if we're like checking the boxes of life right so most millennials would be at around 30ish at this point we're talking and so they're at a stage where, you know, generations before they would have already had a house and already started a family. And so that's part of that divide, I think, is that this monetary, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, we're talking, you were at 22, maybe taking on $100,000 in debt. That's before you even really know what taking on $100,000 in debt is going to Does do. Does to you. Or how long. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. so a lot of the things were like, you know, people talking about. I mean, some about, of it's going to be when they're 18, they're taking on that much debt. Well, Honestly. right. I guess I was saying so. you normally don't start paying it until you've finished your degree. Sure, sure. So at 22 or 23, then but you're, you're agreeing like, to it. Oh, no, I know. Young. But I'm saying, you know, when <laughs> I was in college, we weren't all thinking about it in that moment because it was going to sure. come to us later. Um, but then, you know, people are always quick to be like, well, the millennials don't buy houses. They just rent. They don't have a credit score to buy a house. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, so it it's one of these weird problems that we've created that then hurts a bunch of other markets. I just personally, I, I would love to be in an America where I could work a part time job and pay for education, yeah. formal formal education. Mm -hmm. I would love to be able, I, like, if I could do that, I'd just work part time and like go get another degree just because I could. Yeah. So I, I'd love to imagine that kind of. I mean, it's a commitment world. It's not something you can like do lightly. And sure. it's some it's also this is one of the hardest parts of it as a teacher is that there are some students that you know are going to have to work a lot harder yeah to find yeah. a college program that works for them and you also know that some might not find a fit that's reasonable mm -hmm. and so it's sometimes hard as a teacher to try to give them guidance on something that I don't know is the smartest thing for them monetarily mm -hmm. but that is valued in the way that we have learned and come to value degrees mm -hmm. does that make sense mm -hmm. like yeah there's like a very fine line to walk as an educator to be like degrees are important and also it's a big risk it's a big commitment yeah there you know that kind of thing i th think it's really hard when you're talking about like the kinds of part-time jobs that my friends had in college that that those jobs were just paying for living expenses and textbooks and like stuff on top of it wasn't the, the part-time job was to pay for living it wasn't like, tuition to to meet make sure you weren't food insecure it was like that kind of mm -hmm. thing that's what all of the money of your part-time mm -hmm. job went into i mean you you, you really probably weren't going to be lucky enough yeah. to save any money from your part-time job to eventually pay down student loan debt yeah i had a few friends that lived off campus and so their part-time jobs did pay for housing like mm -hmm. rent you know it's just a, in a totally different kind of tightness to have to squeak by to, like, pay for food and housing yeah. uh, w than it is to pay for food and housing 
and your college tuition at the same time, which is what it was possible to do with a part-time job 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's just a very different mindset. It doesn't mean that somebody's working harder than somebody else in some other generation. It just means that like, it's like, okay, yes, that was already hard to do 30 years ago. Now put yourself in the shoes of somebody who is yeah. going to be crushed by debt for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Likely. I remember really vividly in high school, an English teacher that I had who was probably in like her 12th or 13th year of teaching when I had her and I was in I think 10th grade when this happened and I remember her being excited because that was the day she'd paid her final (laughs) student loan you know so like I remember even in high school being like oh no like (laughs) oh no (laughs) yeah but because I mean it's obviously it's very worth celebrating but yeah in the moment, I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> we should probably dedicate a whole episode to student loan debt because I think it's an interesting problem. But let's just talk about how they get so colleges get so expensive in the first place. Like, what is all this money, this 538, whatever it is, percent increase? Like, do we get 538% more college since 1985? I, this yeah. is where I got angry in yeah. my research, if you want, you know. <laughs> We I to just unleash. want to know what we're paying for. I mean, well, it's partially because of an increase in demand. So, in 2017, there were 5.1 million more students attending college than in 2000. So, we're talking about in 17 years, the amount of students grew by over 5 million. I know that it's saying that that's causing increase in demand. That doesn't seem like that much, given the higher ed landscape in America, but maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and it's also partially because more students are attending college away from home, which does make it more expensive, which heck yeah, which I mean, we both attended colleges where the majority of people lived on campus or, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, so I would agree with that because I remember definitely when I was younger, more kids attending like branches of universities and things like that. So I I think that does have something to do with it. It's going to be interesting to see if it costs goes back down when our so our generation like we were just talking about doesn't have kids uh nearly at the rate that previous generations do so when our generation's kids are college age there's gonna be it's gonna be competitive there's gonna be a desert in terms of there's just gonna be far fewer students of college age so there's gonna be more competition for fewer students Mm mm-hmm um, in the applicant pool. So it'll be interesting well, to see if that has any effect on the cost of higher ed, but that, it probably won't. That might not be all bad either because Ohio is just flooded with colleges. Mm-hmm. There are so many and that's a good thing, but it's a bad thing. You know, it goes both ways. So this being so expensive is also because of the increased availability of financial aid for students, which is good. And that increase has mostly come from federal sources. Uh, there's actually been decreased funding from state resources because that's where the problems are federal you know federal government has picked up the slack so Mm -hmm. there's more money coming toward institutions of higher education for financial aid just as a side note to that for-profit schools will charge up to 75 percent more intuition for students who are eligible for federal loans because they're going to make it back no they're just they're just taking money from the government. That's what I mean, because they know that they can do that. To, sorry, they're that's what like, I meant by like, take it back, as in, like, yeah, they're, they're going to get that money. That should make everybody mad, because that's just for-profit schools taking our money. 75% more intuition for students who are eligible for federal loans, and that's just that alone should make it that for-profit colleges should mm-hmm. not exist. Mm-hmm. 
because they're preying on the most vulnerable po- vulnerable population and using them as a tool to suck money out of our government's coffers. Anyway, all right, so I'll get off soapbox number two and stop complaining about for-profit colleges uh, for now. Expect well, to hear more anger about that later. <laughs> continued. Uh, I mean, there are expenses to running sure. a college. So, I kind of believe it, but maybe not. <laughs> so operating a college includes administrative, instructional, supplies, maintenance, construction, all kinds of expenditures, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Are you mad now, too? I'm, I'm just, yeah. All of those things, like, okay, I just, how many of them have instructional that actually has something to do with learning administrative mm, sometimes a little bit Someone's maybe not papers supplies okay i guess if you for supplies for what for learning how like okay i mean Labs i'm thinking and like stuff and yeah technology yeah maintenance okay if you're having if you have buildings you're gonna have maintenance construction okay that's why you hire college presidents so they can build more buildings right that's what they're for um, I mean, you want my experience? No, <laughs> not really. I did get to see a lot of buildings. Cool. Go up. Cool. And open. Cool. So I just let's just dwell a little bit on this administrative thing. You're you're just mad. Oh well. Uh, before that, hold on a second. So we've also got what are called ancillary services, whatever the heck that means, and it's usually amenities to attract higher paying students because higher paying higher paying students mean students whose parents have more money if we're being quite frank so Mm -hmm. that means higher paying students that means that they get a bigger slice of that tuition so they're going to make more money because they're not going to get as much financial aid as other students so marketing they got to get the kids there somehow and and fundraising they have to spend money to make money oh don't we we also have competitive salaries for top coaches and leadership you don't like this this makes me freaking crazy this is bad. Well, we'll talk about that a little more later, but <laughs> let's just say that some colleges spend enormous amounts of money on athletic programs that they probably shouldn't. But anyway, this entire episode is just like triggering us like back and forth because really just... it like gets something that ticks you off and then I get upset mm-hmm. and then you get mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just... mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we picked a horrible episode. <laughs> a real bummer about this is that the way colleges make up for funding shortfalls is shifting cost to students. So they're constantly trying to find full pay students or, mm-hmm. you know, students who come from wealthier backgrounds. This makes colleges more function more like businesses. They're like, oh, let's that's where I have a lot of let's market to it. everyone. But let's be sure to market just a little bit harder to the students who are going to pay more of a percentage of their tuition. Uh, yeah. So and like out of state students or international students, those are the ones who. Yeah. Yeah. Get catered to or get especially yeah. chased. Yep. So, I mean, part of this whole mechanism is causing some of this administrative bloat. And I do want to kind of harp on this point a little bit because administrative bloat is what is often blamed for the astronomical imp- increase in the cost of higher education. Uh, so what is it? So, yeah. So there's there are teaching and instructional costs and some of those other ones that we talked about in terms of just like human capital. But then there's also... it's those costs are also often disproportionate with admin costs. So between 1975 and 2005, the number, just the pure number of administrators uh, has in colleges increased by 85% and administrative staffers. So that's like 
not necessarily people who have titles, but people who work for people who have titles, those staffers increased by over 240%. Between 93 and 2007, instructional spending per student increased by 39% compared to 61% increase in admin spending per student, which makes me nuts. So, yeah. Part part of the problem that this feeds into, too, is colleges increasingly hiring adjunct professors, so non-tenure track, mm-hmm. lower paid full than full-time professors. Yeah. They're doing that to save money. This is all just, like, so this is all happening. Some people like to blame it on uh, staffing requirements to meet state and federal government mandates. So that money that colleges receive, that higher proportion of federal aid that colleges receive, the claim is that you have to have this administrative mechanism to support all the full, you know, requirements of receiving that aid. So you, you have to be in compliance with X, Y, and Z to receive funding from this governmental in- entity or whatever. So colleges claim that, oh, okay, we have to have these extra administrators in order to qualify for that money in the first place. Mm. So it's so like it's kind of a, okay, I see what you mean. Yeah. So colleges across the country spend approximately $27 billion a year on compliance measures for issues like Title IX and financial aid and diversity and inclusion initiatives. Gosh. It's a staggering amount of money. So anyway, Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that's happening is because of that adjunct hiring spree that has been happening in colleges in America recently. Colleges are spending more money on administrative staff hires because those kinds of staff are taking over jobs that used to be carried out by teaching faculty. Another kind of problem that causes that symptom is that faculty are, it's a very competitive job market, especially for like tenure track faculty right now. So part of that has been redefining faculty, college faculty to really push research and publishing as measures of their success as teachers instead of actual teaching so there's this vicious cycle where it's like uh, okay you're a hired faculty member now in order to stay a faculty member of good standing you have to publish x y and z and do x y and z research and really that has nothing to do with classroom teaching and it's quite the opposite very annoying to me like when when i was at columbia half the time my thesis advisor was inaccessible because she was doing research i'm like excuse me can you just teach me so that i can graduate because that's your freaking job your job is not to publish papers but unfortunately but that's for, not her fault either, no it's not that's her fault though. it's the expectation that's placed on her by the institution in which she teaches so anyway this all just combines into this kind of administrative bullet and administrative nightmare so that's part of the ballooning cost of it all of those different things that make up mm-hmm. the administrative class at colleges this is, yeah, it's all bad all the way down. Turtles all the way down. So part of this conversation, though, has to be separated because there is a big difference between a college or university that is built for the on-campus experience as compared to those that are, you know, majority commuter schools. So like a branch or something like that or like a technical, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... The example right now to like shift over kind of into how COVID is impacting this conversation is that when students were released, right, or sent home forcibly, I would say, in March because of COVID, the conversation then became we should get money back because we're not on campus, right? Like that's where the issues kind of started. And then it continued when universities started opening back up and having students live on campus but in a much different circumstance 
So I have a couple of former students who are attending Ohio State right now. And I'm using Ohio State because it's the largest uh, public institution in Ohio. Um, but also because of our proximity, we're not far from Columbus. So obviously, when you're paying Ohio State prices, right, for how competitive it is, you're paying for that on-campus experience. The appeal of it is that you are off of, you know, High Street and Lane and all of these things. These are the ancillary services we were talking about earlier. Yeah. The so, flashy stuff. Exactly. You're paying for the flashy stuff. So for many students, though, when they were forced to leave, like in March, they're still paying the same thing. It felt like they weren't getting their money out of it because their money was in, in for some housing food you know like those types of things mm. that obviously couldn't have been provided you feel like you aren't getting the full experience that you're paying for when you have to do it remotely right and so i remember a lot of my former students and seniors last year being like i don't know if i want to go away to college now i don't it might be smarter for me to stay home for a year because we don't know what these universities are going to look like mm-hmm. what it's going to be like to live on campus so when ohio state returned in august it was almost um completely built for online classes but the labs on campus were in person so these students right now are paying full tuition they're living on campus but they're doing almost all of the learning via online work so i guess where this gets interesting for me is the fact that ohio state is still charging the exact same amount for a completely altered experience, right? Like, they're not, like, the the same things that they used to do as students are not doing. So there aren't athletic events right now. There are not, um, all of their rec centers are not open. The housing has been changed. They're stuck in their rooms for most of the days unless they have a lab. Um, so a lot of these, like, services, like you're talking about, aren't even offered right now because of COVID shutdown. Mm-hmm. But for places like Ohio State, to follow the money is to open back up and to have people on your campus, right? And that makes maybe the fact that you're paying full tuition feel a little bit less offensive. You know what I mean? Like, that's where I have a hard time with it. But ultimately, paying full tuition right now while learning remotely, even for someone like Ohio State, it's still paying the salaries of important people, right? Like, the professors, the whatevers, are still working, most of them even harder now, to try to make it online. So this is another time where we feel like here teachers are, in this case professors or whatever, working harder than they've ever worked before to be more heavily scrutinized than ever before because of who their boss or employer is, mm-hmm. you know? And that's like a hard cycle to beat. Like mm-hmm. For the students, like the learning isn't the same, but that doesn't mean it's not any worse or better. Yeah. Um, but it feels that way for public high school as well. It does, it, it does kind of seem like a mystery to me though. It's why should I be paying the same amount of money if I'm not actually there? Like if I'm not actually, yeah. like hopefully the maintenance costs would be lower. Hopefully, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're serving food at reduced capacity, hopefully our, you know, yeah dining hall bills are not going to be as like what mm-hmm. why would i be paying you know upkeep of the grounds if nobody's walking across the grounds what does the yeah. upkeep of that look like the fact that it wouldn't be impacted at all seems a little sketchy to me so i do yeah. understand like yeah you're still employing all of the same people yes hypothetically unless you've laid off people who do some of those jobs that i just mentioned but yeah. it just seems like why am I, for example, paying the salaries mm-hmm. of a bunch of really overpaid football coaches if there's no football season? Yeah. 
And that's still happening everywhere. Because they have contracts. You can't just pretend yeah. like the contracts don't exist. But they're exist. not bringing any money in, which right. is what the university is accustomed to. Yeah. Which is one of the biggest decision, you know, factors in the decisions of if there will be seasons or not. Yeah. Which isn't at all about the learning. Yeah. Which you hate the most. I do hate it. So just to compare OSU a little bit to what some other kind of big name universities in this country with COVID and costs, Princeton has offered a 10% price cut on tuition because they're doing all distance learning. Harvard is also doing all distance learning, but even with its $40 billion endowment or something absurd like that, it's still charging full mm-hmm. tuition. Um, and so are Rutgers and University of California schools, both public universities, which well, is pretty interesting. And what I found when we were looking into Rutgers a little bit is that the highest paid public employee in the history of New Jersey is a guy named Greg Schiano, and he's the Rutgers football coach. Cool. He makes $4 million annually. Cool. So we're talking about also Greg Schiano. Yeah, that big name, a, that big name Rutgers football that we all know and love. But he's an Ohio State guy. He's an old Ohio State coach, and that's why Rutgers take, like, took him, you know. Okay. But that's why he's getting paid that. Why? He's going to turn it around, and he, they, they have no chance. But anyways. Um, oh, they're actually trying to put Rutgers on the football. They're match. trying to. So they hired. Greg Shiano is a big catch for them. As an Ohio State fan, it was sad to see Shiano leave, but... Now he's making the most money as literally the highest paid public employee in New Jersey, in the history of New Jersey, for coaching football. And they're horrible. But Rutgers now is trying to keep up with that team up north at Ohio State, which are which are public institutions like them. But this type of thing led Rutgers to amass a $100 million athletic budget in 2018-19, which ran up a ton of deficits. And this isn't the only place where this happens. Stupid. So. It's just stupid. It's just, it makes the conversation so much more difficult because we're talking about, like you said, these people have contracts, right? But the decisions that are being made are not helping the academic side of a university. They're hurting it, right? Money, on the money side of things. Which is also then what these students are forced to be paying full tuition for, even if they never leave their dorm room except for one thing a week. Yeah. That's where I get a little, obviously, worked that up. Is a little, uh, that is a little frustrating. And then we get in the situation of, okay, why do I have such crushing student debt? And it's because of exactly that kind of thing. Yeah. So with COVID, though, you would think schools would be just saving money, right? Like, um, with so many athletics canceled and things like that. But they still have fixed costs. Like, colleges have fixed costs related to instruction. So they do have faculty who do the teaching, counselors who do advising, tutors, all these types of people. So these expenses don't go away just because they've moved online or because they've moved, you know, mostly online in some cases. Um, And those costs are covered by tuition so these costs do not decline when instruction shifts so again it's those fixed costs that you're talking about but i I would hope that this is that even with the impacts of covid on higher ed it's providing an opportunity for more people to more closely scrutinize what some of those fixed costs are like maybe (laughs) four million dollars to a football coach bending when there's no football season i mean how many like how many tuition payments in a year, could you make up 
for with the cost of just that one employee mm-hmm. at Rutgers. Well, and, like, this isn't Greg Shano's fault either. Like, we have created this monster, right? Like, he was doing his job up until, what, a month ago when the Big Ten can't... You know what I mean? Like, that's the hard thing. Like, as long as we have placed the importance of college education and athletics to kind of work like this you know it's not his fault that he's a really well-paid football coach but that's what colleges value that's where money is for colleges all those administrators that we're paying with our tuition have decided that it's important i guess i don't know i'm I'm not saying it's right but i'm just saying i guess that as long as this is sort of relationship that is maintained in Mm -hmm. especially big 10 or pac 12 or whatever big schools like this as long as that relationship is that the money is from athletics you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. i think we're always going to see this it's not right and i know you feel strongly about the purpose of college to be the education you know so but i think i mean it's called higher education not higher football practice it's really not talk to the ncaa (laughs) about how to get pro football and pro basketball players out of these guys before they do you know that's a whole other issue as well but this all becomes even more obvious and easily scrutinized because of covid Mm -hmm. because now students are wondering why am i paying this when i don't have the things you know they're asking why have i decided to take on this debt when Mm -hmm. my education doesn't look anything like what i signed up for yes and is it still as good as it was and am i still you know like all of those things like Mm -hmm. and i think those are really fair questions for students i think it's fair for families i think i don't blame them did you know that student loans aren't dischargeable in bankruptcies no yeah i think i think this is still true i think for the most part you can't discharge student loans when you declare bankruptcy which is like the whole point of declaring bankruptcy did you know that no i the uh, the average uh student debt per graduate who took out a loan is is somewhere around thirty thousand dollars that's a lot and there are 45 million americans with student loan debt and there's what's the total (laughs) 1.5 trillion dollars of student debt out there floating around right now so just all of this and this this Mona is kind of crystallizing around a need to address the rapidly inflating costs of higher ed. I mean, I'm not really sure I understand what a better alternative is. Well, I mean, I, I did want to talk a little bit about some some colleges are trying to address this by doing what's called tuition resets. Um, I think the college that you went to did this a while back. Um, the college that I went to also did it just a couple, like two years ago, maybe. That's when they slashed the sticker price of attending. So instead of like, you know, $55,000 a year or something, we're looking at like $35,000 a year. But sure. the issue is those <laughs> those costs are still going to be made up for, you know, they're going to have a lower percentage of students receiving financial aid um when you have a lower sticker price like that which means that you're going to attract more full pay students so you're making up for this tuition reset by attracting a different kind of you know an upper Mm -hmm. middle class family instead Mm -hmm. of a more diverse student body from Mm -hmm. you know you're not going to attract as many first generation college students or students from working class backgrounds you're just not i mean this kind of competition this ever more fierce competition for college students and the 
the ever increasing size of the administrative machinery to make it all work. It's just, I don't think it's sustainable as a model mm -hmm. because even things that appear to be kind of good on the outside are still being, the costs of them are still being passed on to students. The school I went to for my undergraduate, we had a lot of foreign exchange students mm -hmm. and we had a lot of out of state students who attended there because it was a private university. Yep. And so, you know, when we when we talked about this and when I was doing this research, I was like, that's where the money is, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is how they were offsetting the cost for in-state who got, you know, federal aid or however they wanted to work it. I think the other part of this conversation that is important is that I just think that students, and I'm talking about my most recent grads that I had last year, are sort of learning that maybe their decision-making and their college choices wasn't where it needed to be and it's because it was for this four-year experience you know like so much of what you learn and, and at least that I learned in going to college was all of the things you learn when you leave the house for the first time you mm -hmm. and I mean mm -hmm. so now I think we're going to start to see the conversation shift to the value of a four-year degree the call you know like kind of these things coming back up because college isn't gonna look like it did mm -hmm. for a long time and so what, for example, does someone like Ohio State have to offer if all you have is to sit in your room and attend one lab a week? Mm -hmm. Like the the social interactions, I mean, we were even talking about involvement, like the groups and things like that. Like that's what makes a strong college community. You and I mean, like that's mm -hmm. what builds that. But I wonder if that's not what is most important about it and if that's what we will learn. Mm -hmm. And if there's another way to learn it also. Yeah. I, it's it's going to be kind of interesting to see how these students who are just entering college now come out of it four or two years from now. Mm -hmm. you know? Because like you're saying, college the college experience is sort of like an introductory adulthood, adulthood yeah. experiment. And I mean, teachers, More independence. Tell, yeah. I mean, we tell our students all the time, get out of the house, mm -hmm. go try something, you know. And so that isn't the case right now. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I hope that what this does is I hope that this shifts the political conversation to address some of these issues to say maybe they're not really getting their money out of it because what they are taking on in student loan debt is not going to outweigh the, the pay that they get for getting that degree. You know, like there are just so many systematic things that come with this, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But maybe fortunately that this is the time to be like, hey, you know what? This might not be worth it, you know, like money, like mm -hmm. if we're being honest. In my mind, I would fall on the side of college is still worth it in the abstract. Maybe it's not worth that much money. Yeah. Like, I don't, my my solution to that is not to discourage people from going to college. It's to discourage the ever inflating and rising costs of college education. Oh, 100%. So I just hope it serves as a, as an opportunity for us to all kind of go back to the drawing board when it comes to college costs to figure out where these big expenditures are really happening and whether or not they actually serve students. Because I do think there is value in those experiences that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And there is value even outside of the academic side of it. There's value in the college experience as a kind of gateway to adulthood and mm -hmm. responsibilities that you didn't know you needed to take on before and all this stuff. So I do. Yeah. I do think there's a lot of value in the college experience, but I think that it's going to cause us to more closely scrutinize what that experience is and should be. Yeah, I guess that's what I was trying to get at was that 
the way that it has been valued will probably change into the new ways that we can value it. If, you know, we're looking at one or two years of some sort of world like this. But I think, I think this is interesting for me as a teacher because it is helping me to shape my conversations with my students about attending it, mm-hmm. you know? Like, and I think that's important because sometimes it's hard to talk about the money of it if, you know, as a, as a 16-year-old for my kids, they don't understand mm-hmm. um, what this does. So what do we take from this? Like, what's our, aside from that college is maybe a little bit too much money. <laughs> it's too expensive. Yeah, I, I just, I, I think this whole debate for me comes down to the question of whether or not education taken broadly is a, a right or a privilege. The current cost of higher education treats it as if it's a privilege and therefore schools are run like businesses and you're trying to attract customers, meaning paying students. students. And I don't frankly like any of that. And it's because I think that we need to treat education more as a right. And that's not to say that I think we should socialize the cost of higher education in this country immediately right now. I think that's a huge project, but I do think we need to stop treating stop treating colleges like it's a privilege for only those who can afford it. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to kind of re-examine the idea that education is a privilege in general, because I think unless we start treating it like it's a fundamental right, then we're going to continue to see a kind of decline in the quality of political discourse in this country, mm-hmm. a degradation of the rights and freedoms of individuals in this country. I think a lot of that can maybe be traced back to the ever-diminishing number of people who can afford to have quality education so i I think that it's just in a democratic republic's best interest to ensure that it has an educated populace that doesn't mean that everybody's education has to look the same or that everybody has to go get a four-year degree Mm -hmm. but even just the attitude of treating education like it's a right rather than a privilege i think would represent a huge shift in this country and i think that's a long way off if it's even possible but that is my my takeaway. Yeah. That's a bit lofty, but that's just no, kind of the way I feel I about it. I understand, though, because I, I think my takeaway right now, when I think about the seniors that I have time with this year, you know, like, this is really going to help inform that conversation as far as the reality of what college looks like right now, you know? And not that valuable learning can't be done online, but that what many of us valued about college was the experience. And I think that that might be part of the shift, I guess. I don't know. It's just hard. And I think about my kids who are first years and even second years at places that are paying. You know, it's just, it's tough. Like, colleges aren't planning for pandemics to happen where they just send kids home, you know, like... So I wonder how that will shape the future of these things, but I also wonder if we're very quickly learning, unfortunately, that maybe we've been doing this wrong for a while. Yeah. And it's not an easy fix. Yeah. Oh, it's so heavy. (laughs) I'm just sad, you know, like I think about what my undergrad was like for me, and it was important Mm -hmm. for me as a person, most importantly, but also, you know. Yeah, I had a blast. To become a teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so I just um, there were a lot of levels, and I had <laughs> one of my current seniors told me that a former student asked if they could just come back for a redo of their senior year because they, Aww. you know, and 
it makes me sad. Mm-hmm. And it's not their fault, but they're the ones paying for it in a bunch of ways. Mm-hmm. But I think that we should probably explore the costs of this a little bit more specifically in the future. Mm-hmm. And maybe as we get closer to the election, there will be a conversation surrounding it. Yeah, I'm just afraid it's going to be a temporary conversation that's a political wedge. Yeah, I, I'm, and well, it's I probably true. Like, I, I feel like people don't talk about education and politics to the extent that they could or should because it really is just kind of a, it's a tool to define if you're on our side or their side. Do you want me to call Betsy? No, thank you. I can call Betsy and see what she thinks. No, thank you. <laughs> but okay, I want a very simple answer. Is it fair for colleges to keep charging the same amount for this year's learning? That's my question. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. That's where I am as well. But but I also think that the reality is they've budgeted for X, Y, and Z and committed X, Y, and Z dollars that they have to make up somehow. And there's no wiggle room. Unfortunately, not, not very much. I mean, you might be able to offset some costs with others, but I understand why kids are being asked to pay the same amount of money, but I don't. The, my problem is not necessarily so much with the immediate causes of COVID on tuition costs, but just co- tuition costs in general. Yeah, no, I agree. I guess I was just trying to bring it back to the COVID side of things because I am I am impressed by Princeton cutting 10%. It's not a lot, but it's something. Mm-hmm. So I am happy to see that there was that at least effort. But it is hard. I mean, colleges expect, like you said, this amount years in advance i mean there are projections years in advance of what it needs to look like and how many students and so yeah you can't plan for a couple years like this that's for sure yeah how are you feeling heavy just about heavy all of it i'm just glad i don't have to pay a college tuition anytime soon at the moment same yeah yeah i don't need any more of that i don't i don't need that anytime soon in my life Man. Yeah. I'm going to have my kids do a college research project here in a couple months. Mm. So I'm interested to uh, see if this shapes or forms any of the, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the conversation surrounding mm-hmm. that. All right. You want to move on to fill in the blank? Yeah. What was uh what was last week's question? This is your question. I can't say most of those words. Last week's fill in the blank. This is a treatise on the nature of education and humankind written by Jean-Jacques Rousseau and published in 1762. Rousseau considered it to be the best and most important of all his writings. Due to a section of the treatise entitled Profession of Faith of the Savoyard Vicar, the book was banned in Paris and Geneva and was publicly burned in the year it was published. And what was that treatise called? And it was called Emile, or On Education. Nice job. I did a kind of in-depth study of it in college, and we had a lot of fun with it. Rousseau's kind of cheeky. Cheeky. It's a big, heavy, hard book. It's difficult, but it was uh, very rewarding. Good. Yeah. So what's this week's question? Not as cheeky. <laughs> less cheekiness? In I would say, okay. by definition, far less cheeky. Far less cheeky. Okay. Hmm. All right. On this day in 1787... This important U.S. document. This this day, sorry. This day is the day this episode comes out. The, the 17th? Yeah. September 17th. Okay. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. On this day, September 17th, 1787, this important U.S. document was officially signed, even though it wouldn't be voted into effect until two years later. So what was that document? There's a lull. 
between signing and effectuation. Welcome to America. Is that word? Did I just make that word up? Anyway, okay. So what did we learn this week? I had a fun question this week. I'm teaching Caesar. Uh-huh. I decided that since we started in person, that I would just get Shakespeare as close to done and over with in the event that we do have to go remote. Because I was far more confident in my ability to teach Caesar in person mm-hmm. than online. Which is not to say I wouldn't have done it, but as soon as they were like, we're all back, we're going to do this, I was like, we're kicking this one out because uh-huh. Shakespeare's required. We've talked about this before in a previous episode, but he's the only required author in all four years the of the Common standards. Core. Yeah. yeah. So I had a student the other day ask me, so in Act 1 of Caesar, they're celebrating Lupercal, the Roman uh, festival of fertility. And Caesar tells Mark Antony to uh, touch his wife Calpurnia to shake off her sterile curse. Oh my. <laughs> yeah. Is that how you get rid of sterility? You well, just shake it off? if you're Caesar. Okay. So my thing with the kids was always like, listen to what a jerk Caesar is. Like what husband would talk about, you know, these very, per- whatever. Obviously Caesar wasn't worried about it. He was more worried about himself. But oh. so one of my kids was like, so did he actually have any children? Caesar. Yeah. Okay. So every day I just keep a list of the questions the kids ask that I don't have the answer to. And then Mm -hmm. I usually report back the next day once Mm -hmm. I've had a chance to Google it. And so I Googled it. And he had for sure one legitimate child. Julius Caesar did. (laughs) He named his daughter Julia. Wow. Because that's the kind of guy we're working with here. As you do. And um, long story short, but she actually married Pompey, which didn't end well. Okay. But cue uh-huh. Caesar. Um, but interesting also is that he might have had a son of Cleopatra, but no one's sure. Uh, interesting. But his name was Caesarian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how we get the name. Yeah, the Caesarian. Yes. Yeah, that's that's what happened. Because of how he was birthed. He's also named for Caesar. He was from his mother's womb, untimely ripped. Caesarian or Caesar? Uh, that but, was another Shakespeare, sorry. <laughs> Caesarian was the last pharaoh of ancient Egypt. He actually co-ruled with his mother and was named for Caesar. Uh, so it seems likely that Caesar was, in fact, the daddy. Oh, boy. Maybe. But okay. Cleopatra was super young when that happened also, and she had other children. So everyone just sort of guesses that that's his. Okay. But also unrelated, well, I guess literally related, but he did have an adopted son but it was actually a great nephew and his name was augustus also named for julius so i think he would just take anyone that was vaguely named from him okay and call them their own anyways that's what i learned i was gonna do something very literal that i learned and it's about maybe the actual family tree shrub of the mating practices of julius either i mean we don't want to get too far into that but we could (laughs) i just i i didn't know actually all that much about caesar's children because you know as the play goes there's none of that a lot of stabbing a lot of stabbing knife 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 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of that but um anyways if anyone was curious this week about julius caesar's children you're welcome Cool. And the next time you win that question at Trivia, you at me and send me your 10% of the winnings. I see. You're cutting. You're cutting your cut of the winnings. You're, you're cutting of the you're winds. cuttings <laughs> of the wind, like um, flowers. Okay. So what'd you learn? I oh. love what you learned, actually. Yeah. So you already knew about this because you'd seen this before, but I had not seen this before. We watched this, I guess it's a movie, kind of like a documentary a little bit, called The Founder. And it's about... The founding of McDonald's, the ubiquitous 
disgusting fast food that is all over the world now i mean i love it but it's gross come on it's so gross it can be both yeah (laughs) disgusting and delicious yeah but we watched this thing called the founder and uh what's his name was in it the guy who played the founder michael keaton michael keaton plays roy crock who is the Laura Dern is his wife. Right, Laura Dern and also Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman is one of the original McDonald brothers. Nick Offerman is one of my favorites, so it was fun to watch him in this role. But he plays one of the yeah, one of the McDonald brothers. So And these two brothers in California, they started McDonald's. They had the first restaurant. And then this guy, this kind of skis ball kind of this this really slimy dude who's like a traveling salesman shows up at their restaurant convinces them that what they really need to do is franchise it then rips the rug out from underneath them because he becomes this he he buys up all these parcels of land all over the place and then convinces people to become franchisees at mcdonald's but he is the one who is making the money he's the landlord for these franchises so he's uh, that's also how they supposedly control the kind of quality of the franchises and how strictly they're adhering to the original concept is by just saying like oh well i'll just pull your lease if you don't do x y and z but this guy this kind of this skeezy dude just came in swept up all of the value from this business proposition and then bought out the original brothers who started it so that they wouldn't deal. sue him on a handshake deal mm-hmm. that he never actually yeah he uh what was it was in the handshake deal the use of the name i 1% think one percent of oh yeah one percent of profits from future franchises sales. future sales of the franchises so and that was a supposed handshake deal and he never followed through on that mm-hmm. i mean nasty let's be real a handshake deal is not a real thing anyway uh so anyway the brothers were kind of conned and maneuvered out of what could have been they could their even use their name fortune again. right they 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 gave up the rights to their own name in future restaurant ventures as part of this deal mm-hmm. so they really got you know the mcdonald's that we know and don't really love but occasionally eat at is we love to hate it and love it i love to hate a big mac uh yeah it really wasn't it really wasn't the brainchild of the original founders. It was the brainchild. No, of this... Ray Kroc was a milkshake salesman. Was that his name, Ray Kroc? Did I say Roy Kroc? I think his name was Ray. Whoops. Ray. Oh, Kroc. definitely. K R O C. I said Roy. He it's Ray. looks like a Big Mac. You know, like if a Big Mac had a face, it'd be Ray Kroc's. Slimy. It's got some sesame Maybe seeds on it. Maybe it's a little bit more of a chicken nugget shape. No. Ooh, a little chicken nuggety. Um, just kind of an all-around gross guy. Really not. I I hate the story. I love the movie. I think the it's so great. well done. The movie is really interesting and it's fun to watch. But it's it on also Netflix. Makes me really depressed about yeah. McDonald's. But yeah, worth a watch. Yeah, it was. It definitely is. They've done the movie is great. I can't believe it didn't do any better. It has to be because of what it was about. I can't imagine why else. But yeah, so if you want to feel even worse about yourself when you support McDonald's, <laughs> know that Ray Kroc swindled the McDonald brothers out of millions of dollars Yep. to sell us bad How dare you do Nick Offerman dirty like that? Just don't even... Except for Joan Kroc, you didn't even mention her. What about her? Wasn't Didn't you say you used to hear about the oh, thank yeah, you to yeah, her? So there's... When I was living... When I commute up 
the North Baltimore area, I'd have NPR in the car to get the news, and they would often thank the estate of Joan Croc. Joan Croc was somebody else's wife that he stole. Ray Croc stole and then left <laughs> his money to. But they got married. But she yeah. was, she gave money to NPR among other. So that's a little better. Yeah, good for you. But I don't feel good about that now, knowing how that money was really acquired. It seems like kind of like dirty money, but oh, it's so mm, yeah. Anyway, that's what I learned. I learned about <sighs> McDonald's. Yeah. Any final thoughts for the week? Um, wear a mask. Mm-hmm. Black lives still matter. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. Okay. I think those are the the important things. Cool. Do you have anything you want to add? No, I think that's that about covers it. And we'll see you again in two weeks. Bye. Thanks for supporting 16 to 1. We're trying to grow our audience, so please check us out at 16to1.com, all spelled out, and tell your friends about the show. On our website, you can find links to follow us on social media, an archive of all our old episodes, and a contact form where you can get in touch. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next show. I am a Gryffindor.